0: Uh, oh,
1: <laughs> that's my creative cursing book. Sorry, Seth, go on. Um, I need to pee <laughs> and I cannot possibly share <laughs> what you just showed me. Snail trail. If he's still recording, I'm just going to talk.
0: Like, what do I talk about? Um, I miss our super fan. I want to know how he's doing, Chris. <laughs> I'm pretty sure he's our only fan at this point. Um, and also, if somebody could write in some sort of comment section, like, um, I don't, like, I really hope he cuts all this out. Oh, I'll tell, I'll tell a little story. So yesterday, I was at a restaurant in Indiana, and. Um, they had all... Well, it was a bar, really, but they served food. So they had all of these pairing suggestions, um, which made it sound a lot fancier than it was. And they were, like, the most ridiculous pairings. So it was like, bottle of Shiraz, medium-bodied, great with nachos. And it was really
1: funny. <laughs> Way to really sell the humor of that story, Asia. <laughs>
0: well, I heard you coming back, so I was like, well, I'm
1: done. <laughs> uh, I wish you hadn't shut down. I also please tell me what you were going to tell our super fan, Chris O'Neill. I saw him. I saw him very recently and I miss both him and you, but him slightly less now that I've seen him. (laughs) How how is he? He's good. He is, he is studying. Um, He is becoming an even better artist than he was before. Like he's moved into the medium of drawing and, and both in ink and on computer um, and he's moving into, like, studying animation and, yeah, wow. doing pretty darn well. That's awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. what do you what do you have to say to him?
0: Um, you know, I just said I've been reading up on the issues in Syria and I hope that, you know, his family and stuff is
1: okay. Oh, um, I hope so, too. That's one of the things that's gotten worse since we last recorded that I don't really feel qualified. Oh, for... not at all. Yeah, or any of that to talk about. Um, oh. But yeah, like I hitting back on our earlier subject, um, I would definitely say that part of the reason that I haven't recorded the By That I Mean podcast in such a while is that I have been in kind of a slump. And I want to say that I've had uh, anxiety and depression most of my life and I continue to struggle with it. And so if anyone is out there um, who has anxiety and depression, I hope you're getting the help for it that you deserve and need. But I also hope that you use it to try to learn about yourself and to learn what about yourself can be improved in the time that you have with whatever energy whatsoever you can put into doing it. And I hope you use it to create and to... You know, find find the way to make your life productive and worthwhile and fulfilling for yourself. Yeah. I can't see you. No, you cannot, because I do not have a camera, but I can see you, which I, I think is creepy. You. I think that's kind of creepy, and I like it.
0: I want to see you. <laughs> like, that was part of the thing. no. Remember yeah. when I said that I had a stipulation or whatever? I wasn't kidding about
1: that. Huh. Well, I, I thought that stipulation could take place at another time. No. That's not how life works. <laughs> well, I don't have a camera that I can plug into my desktop. We will have to do a video call on my laptop.
0: Okay.
1: And we can do that very soon. All right. Um, and also, I think I'm probably going to hide the video because it's creeping me out. What's what creepy about no, this? No, it's creeping me out that I can see you and you can't see me. Feels like...
0: Doesn't that creep me out? Feels, <laughs> I,
1: I don't know. Like, I, I'm just feeling the power of it. I think that's what's scaring me, Aisha, is that... I don't feel anything. <laughs> I can witness. I can observe. And you can't observe me. I'm
0: gonna hold up random things. It's the microphone. I think Johnny's back. He might be able to fix it, but I don't think we have that kind of
1: time. No, it's okay. I think the sound quality from this is going to be just fine. All
0: right. Let me mute my video now. Ah, I-
1: that's that's actually much better because I I kept trying to look away, but then it even had that tiny Skype video window. It was still <laughs> like I'm I'm going to observe her. She's so so beautiful and yet so far away. <laughs> Um, occasionally I will unmute the video, um, just to creep you out. Like, do you have things prepared that you're going to do when you unmute the video and appear randomly before me? Like, are you, are you going to try to jump scare me? Like, what is, what is the end game here? <gasps> <laughs> <laughs> no one was able to see this but me. And now I feel like the tables have turned because whereas I was feeling a great sense of power in being able to watch Asia on her Skype webcam, she now controls the feed and is intermittently popping up with a head-scratching device of some kind. That
0: kind of ruined
1: the surprise, but this is my Batman walkie. (laughs) That did not ruin the surprise, because I had no idea what that sound was. I thought that you were perhaps hacking something up. Yeah,
0: no, it's definitely my Batman (laughs) walkie-talkie.
1: Your Batman walkie-talkie. Yes. I feel like Batman would probably have the walkie-talkie technology built into the Batsuit. No, no, that's
0: my Batman. (laughs) No,
1: it's a a separate thing. Batman has a separate (laughs) walkie-talkie. How, let's just consider the logistics here. How are you going to expect Batman to put a walkie-talkie up to his ear? Wait a minute. Now that we're, now that I'm thinking of this, how is Batman ever able to hear anything? Um, that's a great question. I feel (laughs) like he's got like a solid inch, at least, of protection and armor of some kind. He's protecting that squash. Yeah. You know, like he's not going to jeopardize that brain of his. How is he actually able to hear through that suit? Well, it definitely, I'll tell you this, isn't with a Behringer microphone plugged in. Yeah, definitely not. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, we tried it, to use advanced technology, and I feel like even getting Skype to work at all <laughs> is a grand accomplishment on our part. <laughs> um, but I'm definitely glad we did. Hello, Asia Coleman.
0: Hi, how are you?
1: pretty good. And I am Seth Pearson. And this is the first official episode of By That I Mean that has been recorded in the year of our Lord 2015. Yeah. Where the hell have we been? I don't know where you've (laughs) been.
0: I know where I've been. I've been uh, working and uh, swimming
1: and uh, I had surgery. Um, Working, swimming, surgery.
0: Yeah, I was like, when I say I had surgery, like that could mean anything. So no, it really,
1: it really could. Yeah, like Like, done. Like wait, wait. So was this the surgery to integrate your normal human parts with dolphin parts?
0: No, no. I just not that that
1: surgery. I just saw that
0: episode of South Park yesterday. By the way, that's funny. Um, No, it's um, whenever I'm in Indiana, I get some sort of weird illness that can only be fixed either through antibiotics or surgery. And in this case I had like a kidney stone, but it was in my tear duct. Um, and it was an inch and a half in diameter. And they what? had to cut my face and take it out of my out of my tear duct and sew my face back up. Yeah. I, I
1: thought Wait. I told you about this. <laughs> you told me about it. You did not <laughs> specify the diameter nor a radius. Nor any kind of Pythagorean theorem to deduce the actual physical size of this object that came out of your face—an inch and a half in diameter. Yeah, and that's really big for a tear oh, duct. That is such a horrifying thought. I yeah. oh, is my face? And, and this is a picture. I'm seeing a picture of Asia's face during this time. Yet another way. She has terrorized me with her <laughs> sporadic video. <laughs> that was fun. Again, folks, you think you've got one up on Asia Coleman, and then she turns the tables right around on you. So Asia's been working, swimming, and getting gigantic things cut out of her face. Yeah. Um, yeah. I have been working. I have been not swimming, and I probably should. And I have been in Los Angeles, uh, where, where I tend to be. Um, and... And not recording. And not recording. Unfortunately, I have been trying to focus on music and trying to work on my own photos. Um, and that has not left a ton of time to record podcasts. And also, it's been relatively difficult to muster the stamina and fortitude it takes to talk about all this bullshit on a regular basis and i'm going to try to think of more ways to uh make it possible to record more episodes and re- to record on a more uh and to record on a less intermittent basis um but i'm definitely so happy to record even for a little while with you, Asia Coleman, Um, despite your working and swimming and surgery-ness.
0: I'm also in a
1: relationship, so... Yeah, there's also that. There's also that you have this kind of relationship thing where you're in love and you moved in and are happy and <laughs> like, yeah.
0: Go like, um, on, Seth <laughs> little,
1: Oh, um, no, I, I'm sorry That's just my default speaking voice
0: Like, I'm so happy for you
1: I am So happy for you
0: um, Yeah, well, thank you I appreciate it <laughs> I, really, I, I really believe <laughs> I really believe, you know, that that was, that came from a place of sincerity
1: and, um, Oh yeah. And and genuine. It's my most genuine sincerity and sincere genuinity.
0: Well, okay. So sometimes like I'm a mess, um, but I know that I'm a mess and I'm always like, you know, I'm not going to be a mess forever. And that's kind of like a justification to just stay a mess um and then sometimes I'm like you know I'm sick of being a mess so like I fix myself as much as I can and then I'm ready to be around other people because when I'm a mess I don't want to know anybody and I don't want to be touched and I don't want to be talked to um so I'm going to be in this relationship until I hit that point again where I don't want to be talked to <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to hope forever but we'll see because you know I'm unpredictable
1: um, as we've learned, as we've learned with your webcam use, you are certainly unpredictable. That's
0: my, uh, that's, my uh, that's my style.
1: I mean, well, it's great that you're letting this play out in a very organic way, <laughs> and yeah. and and that you definitely haven't planned out when you're going to push. I don't know. Is that the eject button? Are you still planning a grand escape to Los Angeles?
0: I am, but so is he, so, but his is a lot, um, how do I say this more disciplined than mine, um, he's, (laughs) he's got, like, a plan, and he's, like, doing things to actually accomplish this plan. Oh, Um, well,
1: isn't that great that he's got a plan, and he's accomplishing his goals, and bringing Uh, out the best in you. (laughs) I'd say that,
0: <laughs> like oh. my, like, <laughs> On my end.
1: Sorry, I wrote more in there than belonged.
0: Um, fuck bitches, get money. So I'm, a, I'm just getting money until I have enough to get out of here. But then things come along where like I have like a bunch of money, and I think, oh, it's cool, I can go now. And then something happens where like a kidney stone appears in my tear ducts. And then I have to spend money, and I'm very upset about it.
1: Well, you can't spell Indiana without inch-and-a-half-diameter kidney stone in your eye. That's true. So keep that in mind, you know? Uh. I'm at least glad that your bizarre emergent health conditions are just costing you money and not, you know, completely debilitating you or something. But I'm definitely convinced that where you live and your geography kind of affects your health. And so does, like, life stress and stuff. But it's awesome that you're in the mode of fixing yourself. It makes it a little bit more bearable to talk about the kind of crazy bullshit that is kind of the status quo in this country and in this life, if you're at least doing the things that you can, the few things that you can to, you know, fix yourself and to get better and more energetic and all that stuff.
0: Oh, definitely. I I find that I have way more opinions about things when I'm fixing myself because I feel like I, in a way, I, it kind of feels like I deserve to have them. Whereas, I get really insecure when I'm not trying to fix myself. Um, part of that is I mean and I don't mean like necessarily fixing myself in terms of like working out or anything. I just mean on any front. Like if I'm just like yeah. a then that's when I just get really closed off and don't or, you know, at the beginning stages because you're so kind of weak and fragile at that point and you just want to focus all of your energy on trying to like undo the damage that you've done to yourself, that you don't really have time for anything else, um, especially opinions about things that you can't affect.
1: So I, I think there are a couple of things in that that are very true. And one of the aspects is that when you commit to trying to improve the stuff about yourself and your life and your outlook that you can improve, your scope tends to grow over time. And also, like you become sensitive and more aware to things that are wrong But rather than, like, because, like, when, when you're in the kind of defeatist mode, the mindset becomes, like, anything you become aware of that's wrong, that's a thing you can't control, just hurts you and is awful and seemingly can't be fixed. But then as your kind of strength grows, then not only does your kind of conscious awareness grow, but your kind of understanding of how you can attack whatever that problem is gets a little bit finer and you get you have a little bit more energy to take it on
0: yeah and I don't know if this is necessarily true of everyone because I've observed kind of different reactions and different people like so for instance if my life is going to shit I tend to internalize those things and kind of hurt myself whereas other people I've noticed kind of lash out at others for for kind of seemingly no reason, you know what I mean? They, they have very small slights against them that they feel are much bigger than they are. And I think if they took a step back, they would see that, um, and I'm not talking about anybody specifically. I'm just talking about things that I've noticed from some of my friends that have gone through things that, um, it just seems like they kind of lash out. Whereas I to yeah. realize.
1: Well, and I think those are two sides of that same coin. Um, I have certainly done both at different parts of my life. Um, yeah, I and I, yeah, when I'm in a funk, when I'm in a depressive mode or, you know, mindset or whatever, um, I kind of alternate between both of those. Um, and then it's also, like, catching yourself with the guilt of hurting other people if you do lash out, like, that then feeds your kind of insecurity and that feeds that kind of that kind of negative ego self. That's like that negative image of you where you think nothing can get better. Meanwhile, um, in the months and weeks and days and hours, seconds and minutes, since the last time that by that I mean podcast recorded, a whole social movement bloomed in America, unfortunately around and for the cause of reducing police murders of innocent black people in this country um the black lives matter movement is now a thing it was not a thing the last time we recorded i don't think anything has been a thing since the last time we recorded yeah i kind of feel like everything happened while we were gone yeah everything i don't know if everything was waiting for us to go on an unplanned and unprecedented hiatus but it definitely happened Um, The Black Lives Matter movement is now a huge part of the American political conversation. What do you think about it? Um, Are you asking me or audience?
0: Yes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) The answer to your multiple choice question (laughs) is yes.
0: Um, um, I think that it is good um, for the. I don't I I'm kind of upset that there would be any sort of controversy surrounding the issue of whether or not black lives matter <laughs> um, um, in this all lives matter kind of attack on something that just seems so that came from such a pure place of you know, please stop killing us um, and then to in turn affect say, well no, you know, my life matters too, which I mean it's it's not like the two are mutually exclusive. Nobody is saying, by Black Lives Matter that your life, if you are not black, does not. That's ridiculous. Wait,
1: it's not saying that? That's the (laughs) only reason I supported Black Lives Matter was because I believed that there was an unspoken second part of that, like the dot, 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 and white lives don't. I thought it was... Is that not... No, no, it is not the Ku Klux Klan. No? No, it's not. No, I'm not
0: sure I support it anymore, then. For black people that no it's not it's just saying please stop killing us state government please it you know that i, I don't think that, that there's an issue with that sentence I, d- I don't think that there's an issue with this movement i think that um it might need a, to be a bit more organized um i don't want it to go the way of um of that
1: Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. You don't remember the name of Occupy Wall Street? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Don't want that to happen anyway. To I, I, I kind of feel embarrassed
0: that I forgot about it, but at the same time, like the name of it, but at the same time, of course I forgot the name of it. Because, like, what the fuck have they done recently? I mean, I understand that that came from a very pure place as well of – whatever they wanted to do, which was never clearly defined. And I don't want the Black Lives Matter movement to go the way of that. I feel like some of the controversy and people saying all lives matter is going to help it stay around longer and long enough, hopefully, to have a platform. So the controversy isn't
1: all bad. It's just 85% bad. I'm quantifying everything now. I definitely think Black Lives Matter is unique in a couple ways. Like, one is that, it already has kind of become more organized, but it's definitely getting more organized. There are kind of these regional chapters that have sprung up in a ton of cities, both small and large, across the country. Um, but it's mostly been a thing that's been working outside the electoral process and kind of process politics. Um, but it is a political movement. So I think that's always the type of thing that's going to confuse some people and enrage others and frustrate others. And it's always up to, in my view, it's always up to movements to determine for themselves what role they feel best equipped to play and what extent to which they're going to like get involved in the actual politics. But I definitely agree with you that it has to happen at some point for you to be able to change the systems that are making these outcomes real for people. You know? So I, I, and I do think that kind of they've been working, black lives matter as a movement has been working mostly outside the kind of American political process, but in organizing and in um, getting people mobilized in the streets to march against this and march in favor of the message they are really committing democracy in action, you know. So what they're doing is inherently political in and of itself. Um, even before you get into, for instance, like them shutting down bridges with the protesters, um, like spanning highways and kind of or, and like forcing traffic to reroute at at some of their demonstrations and um, and marches. Um, But now Black Lives Matter is starting to kind of enter the political process in a couple of specific ways that I wanted to touch on. Um, One is that one of the activists who's been kind of the most, one of the most visible, um, one of the most visible people involved in Black Lives Matter and in speaking to the aims and the goals of the group Uh, A guy named DeRay McKesson has just launched uh, a group called Campaign Zero, and you can find the website at joincampaignzero.org. And he's put together a group that has proposed 10 reforms to policing and to the kind of prison system um, in order to, again, both... Get into the specifics of the American political process that we have, and, but really to specifically deal with the things that are in law now that allow hundreds of black Americans and brown Americans and poor Americans getting ruthlessly imprisoned when they're not getting violently assaulted by cops and when they're not losing their lives without even the chance at a trial. Um, And I wanted to briefly just touch on the 10 steps involved in Campaign Zero. Um, And these are really just a couple words each, and they're pretty very easy to understand. There's even a chart that they put together. Um, Step one is ending the broken windows policing system, which is where police focus on minor infractions, minor drug charges, all of that. Number two is community oversight of police and the prison systems. Number three is limiting the use of force which I have another article that we'll talk about in a second. Number four is independently investigate and prosecute when, when cops do break the law and extrajudicially murder people. Um, number five is community representation. Number six is body cams and filming the police. Number seven is changing the way that police are trained. Number eight is ending for-profit policing. Number nine is demilitarization of the police forces. And number 10 is fair police union contracts. There are very specific ways that the problems in our police forces and in our kind of judicial system can be addressed. And part of that is only because there's so much fuckery that's going on and there are so many awful things that are either outright legal or, um, or places where there's no real accountability when police do violate their oaths. Um, But the other way that the Black Lives Matter movement and the kind of associated activists with that are getting involved in the political process is protesting and in some cases even interrupting and shutting down events that are organized either by um, 2016 presidential primary candidates or kind of other related political organizations that are progressive. Um, And that's been really interesting because... Usually a lot of the energy we see about protesting and about interrupting things and being outrageous is that market is usually cornered by Republicans. Um, So it is, again, a bit different to see progressives and liberals and people who um, definitely claim to be on the side of the people. Um, it's something new to see those folks get interrupted and to get challenged in public and very vocally on both positions that they've taken in the past and on positions that they're not really sticking out now, especially in as far as they apply to, you know, Black Lives Matter and the issues there.
0: Yeah, I think that's actually a very interesting strategy in terms of their movements, basically a seeing because... I'm sure anybody involved in the Black Lives Matter movement isn't going to vote Republican. So it's basically seeing if their chosen representative is actually going to care about them and going to put, you know, their money where their mouths is, and just seeing if their actions are aligned with their words. And I, I feel like that's a, you know, it's a very strong statement, and it's a very interesting way of getting that accomplished.
1: I could not agree more. I. I have seen so much... I, I will say this. I will be quite honest and say that I like Bernie Sanders. Um, I have liked Bernie Sanders for a long time. I, At the moment, I would say that he's one of the potential Democratic presidential candidates that I support. But he has required this kind of criticism and this kind of confrontation in order to reckon with structural racism. Because I think for generations now, the kind of democratic and liberal and progressive movements have not centered the voices of non-white people, have not centered the voices of the poor and the working poor in forming their kind of agenda or even forming their kind of understanding of the way that class works in this country. And like what we've talked about, the kind of class war that's being waged by the rich against the poor. Um, And I think contrary to so much wailing and gnashing of teeth by white people on Twitter, I think Bernie Sanders is in the best position to be challenged on these kind of things because he's already kind of class conscious. Like you said, like the point of this is to push these people into a better consciousness and into a into a broader awareness of the ways that class war is being waged and also of the ways that we're currently using the same systems in the laws that we use to fuck over poor people to specifically and beyond all else punish people who are non-white in this country, whether that's African-Americans, whether that's immigrants, whether that's undocumented immigrants, um, you know, and, and also while we're at it, whether that's LGBT Americans or women like these, all of these systemic problems are persisting in this country because we haven't had leaders and we haven't had bodies of power like a U.S. Congress that are comprised of people who are able to understand the ways that law creates outcomes, that laws create the parameters in which all of these kind of social games get played. Um, So it's been really fascinating to see, like, Bernie Sanders already was kind of pushed into a position, but really, I think, rose to it and came up with a pretty comprehensive policy strategy really close to the campaign, zero points. Um, to improve the accountability of police to their communities and to try to kind of limit the use of violence in responding to, you know, things where it's not even a, a suspected crime at the moment. Um, but it'll also be interesting to see the kind of pushback that they end up receiving from conservatives, you know, because the last time this all happened, the last, uh, the m- many of the last times that America has had this kind of conversation, as you want to call it, about violence and about police violence, um, we got suckered into a set of really pernicious and racist myths that totally brought Democrats, um, specifically the Clintons, into a position where they supported a bunch of heinous, heinous policies. Um, All of our kind of modern legacy of the tough-on-crime shit that includes, like, three-strikes laws, that includes mandatory minimum sentences for drug possession, um, that includes, you know, taking away rehabilitation out of our prison system, all of that kind of comes from the approval of Clinton Democrats. So even when we hear Hillary Clinton saying the words Black Lives Matter... She has to be put in a place to propose and support, you know, very specific changes to laws. And that's going to have to include changing a lot of the laws that her husband passed and that she specifically supported. Like, I even saw a video of Hillary from, like, the early 1990s repeating, have you ever heard of the myth of the super predator, Asia? You say
0: super predator? Yeah. Oh. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you said super creditor. And I was like, I'm dealing with that right now. No. <laughs> <laughs> I
1: yeah. have heard of it. <laughs> right, okay. What do you remember of Super Predator? Sadly, it is not a sequel to the delightful 80s action franchise. Um, that actually came into 90s, too, Alien vs. Predator. Um, I know, I, I don't know. And I into our very decade. So the Super Predator myth was, sadly, it was another kind of sequel. Uh, Super Predator was the kind of propaganda successor to the welfare queen myth. So in the 80s, the welfare queen myth was the story that Reagan and a bunch of other right-wing demagogues spread around basically talking about how black Americans, usually women, were gaming America's welfare systems, you know, and they were having um, a ton of kids so they could get more benefits— and they were you know raking in all those big bucks and driving their cadillacs to the store to buy t-bone steaks So that was in the 80s, and that was used both in the 80s and in the 90s under Clinton to justify slashing welfare benefits. Remember, Clinton signed on to ending welfare as we know it. But in the 90s, there was another kind of racist myth that popped up called the super predator. And even the Clintons signed on really big to this idea. The super predator was this notion of a subhuman kind of monster, like an inhuman, violent monster. And it was a lot like the kind of um, reefer madness myth, but without the specificity of the drugs. Um, and also by, you know, like by the 90s, a lot of times that was kind of replaced with crack. So it was like a possibly crack fueled, um, you know, whether it was a rapist or a gangbanger or a... You know, whatever whatever kind of crime it was that they would tie into it, the point of it was to argue that all of these mandatory minimum sentences, that these three strikes laws that would eventually get people into jail for lifetime sentences, even for having weed. It was argued that all of these policies were necessary because the people who were committing these crimes were not people they were these subhuman monsters who could not be rehabilitated who could not be redeemed in any way and who had to be completely taken out of society um for the good of every for the good of all of us uh polite law-abiding americans um so it's important that we i think it's really important that we have organizations like black lives matter that aren't you know it's it is good that they're going to work in the political realm and and deal with the specific laws that are already on the books. But I also think it's crucially important to continue and for that movement to continue their organizing that's happening outside of politics because so often we see... These conversations that stay within the political system completely get hijacked by bullshit propaganda, get hijacked by racism, and lead us toward outcomes that are just as bad as the previous laws that were in place, just updated for a new era and a new set of horrific things that are happening. You know, so I think... I think for the kinds of reforms that need to happen to really go through, it needs to come with pressure that's both inside the political system pushing out and outside of the political system pushing in.
0: I mean, this isn't the first time that a black movement has been
1: vilified where a black person... Wait, it, it's, it's not? Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait. Asia, are you saying that other times non-white Americans have had to more than politely ask for things? Oh, oh, yes, yes. Um, no, I mean, I mean,
0: since the beginning of basically the history of this country, I feel like black people have been fighting for just the right to be called human versus white people. So, you know, say, there's all these political campaigns that have happened since the beginning of black people, like the first ship landing here, where white people will make it so that black people aren't people like the three fifths of a person, um, or now they're they're you know six eighths of a person, or the um, what have you, just so that they can justify the shitty things that they do to us. Um, so yeah, I remember um, hearing about the Black Panthers when I was in high school um, and middle school actually, and how everybody in my school, like obviously I was the only black person, um, especially my history teacher, was vilifying the group and called Huey P. Newton. Um, a psychopath. And I listened to his manifesto, which was basically like, we want black kids to have access to safe schools and education, and we want them to have meals. Oh, my God, what a shitty psychopath. (laughs) A horrible person. He sounds like a super predator to me. (laughs) (laughs) Super, super predator. And then, I don't know, just the whole crack thing, which pisses me off so bad. Like, that is... That is... I, in my opinion, the strongest indictment of America in terms of how it, treat, it treats minorities. Um, um, I'm not going to get into that because it could be, um, but I mean, I'm just saying like, since the beginning, there, there's always, I don't want this movement to go the way of the Black Panthers, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Um, but I, I feel like what it could use, the Black Panthers had was a very strong and charismatic leader that, very clearly stated its objectives and goals.
1: Well, I, I feel like, and it's interesting, Like I, I feel like I am less invested in any specific outcome for that movement than I am hopeful for the development of it and hopeful for what it can become and what it can uncover in the course of becoming whatever it's going to become. You know, because, like I said, like I feel like it's serving a purpose in our kind of political discourse that no groups have come close to, to occupying, to steal that word, uh, in in many generations. You know, because unions and and that kind of form of organizing and that source of organized uh, little d democratic power, people power. Uh, Unions as a force have been so diminished in America that, you know, like for basically your and my lifetime, we haven't really seen unions really occupying a central uh, voice in the kind of national political dialogue at all. I Um, I feel like that's
0: true in terms of voices. I feel like the gay rights movement has been completely powerful and and super effective,
1: like extremely well, and and I think, and that's actually exactly where I was going to go with it, because I I think in the LGBT liberation movement, you've seen an incredibly successful on the political level and successful on the kind of interpersonal level, uh, civil rights and liberation struggle there, and that does not have you know, just one or even just a few charismatic leaders, like its power has come both inside and outside of politics. You know, like I'm saying, like about Black Lives Matter, pushing both from outside the political system and pushing within the political system. And it's changed an unprecedented amount of minds in a very short amount of time. Um, So I definitely can see power coming to and success coming To the issues of the Black Lives Matter movement um, without necessarily having that leader there. But I also think you were very right to um, point out that like the intentional pose of Occupy Wall Street as being only entirely outside of politics as it stands ended up being its undermining because then it wasn't able to address the facts on the ground because the facts on the ground are being created by these laws we have in place and created by our priorities that we're setting both a matter of policies, but also the people who are in place to execute those laws. As you're saying, like I think there's room for, and I think there's a need for both electing the right people to office and empowering groups to push those people when they are in office um, but it's also a matter of naming these systems and naming the reasons why these laws get passed in the first place and confronting them whenever and wherever possible and If that means making certain political parties uncomfortable, if it means making certain groups of people in this country uncomfortable, so be it because you know like if you want to talk about who's being made uncomfortable, I would say it's the you know 22% of those in state prisons for drug offenses and that was that statistic was from 1990 so i'm sure i'm sure it's definitely less now right asia It skyrocketed probably <laughs> um, and and we do have uh, like to be fair we do have president obama who has pushed more than any other us president to try to change sentencing guidelines and to try to push on the state level Um, the change to sentencing guidelines in order to get rid of some mandatory minimums and things like that. But again, we still have so many parts of the kind of hyper war on drugs in place now um, that it's going to take more than just having a president to change all of that. So it's not just a matter of which presidential candidate we push. It's a matter of what Congress they would be able to elect.
0: Yeah, I mean, I was going to say, I feel like he's doing the most that he can do without having... um, you know, work in Congress, or I mean, I really appreciate what President like the strides he's made. It seems like so rapidly, so much has happened um, that that it's advancing positive change, and that's a huge testament to you know who he's appointed and what he's actually tried to do, um, and how like I guess the the kind of creative maneuvering that he's he's taken to do it.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, and another thing that's happened since we last recorded is that President Obama has gone full-on, like, out-of-fucks-to-give mode uh, and has issued a ton of executive orders to, you know, raise the minimum wage for federal employees, to direct the EPA to regulate carbon dioxide from um, from coal plants, to regulate methane emissions from factories. Um, President Obama has really gone all out and trying to do everything he can on the executive branch level to make the country better, you know, because he finally had to reckon with the fact that after the 2012, after the 2014 midterm debacle part two, um, he wasn't going to get any cooperation to do any of these kind of things to move the country forward. Um, and he's even taken more steps in the kind of drug war, um, arena, um, after you know already doing a lot with Attorney General Eric Holder to push states to be a bit more lenient and to let some more prisoners go, President Obama has more recently commuted and pardoned the sentences of some people who were um, who were sentenced to lifetimes in prison just for simple drug possession and in some cases just marijuana possession. Um, and it really is a moral crime and an ongoing one that still so many people are in prison for that. And so I would hope, if anything, like if this president really is and really is fully out of fucks, um, as much as we would hope him to be, I would hope that, you know, at some point he would pardon as many people as humanly possible with that robo pen or whatever it is he uses to, to actually execute those pardons. Like I, I really, it would be a dream to see thousands of commuted sentences because there really are hundreds of thousands or millions of Americans who even aside from the folks who are just in prison now, like the folks who have gotten out of prison who have felony convictions that will follow them for the rest of their lives every time they try to get a job. Like, there are many more things that he can do, but there's very little on the ultimate scale that he can do to get rid of the laws that are on the books now, you know? And then another aspect of it is the kind of um, the kind of orientation of the police themselves because as we've seen... Not only since 9-11, but again, since the Clinton era, we've had this militarization of police. And that's not just, you know, sending local police forces Humvees and assault rifles and body armor and all of that bullshit. But it's also a kind of um, counterinsurgency mindset that's been put into police training, which is part of why I think those kind of specific points on DeRay's uh, Campaign Zero um, outfit like make a lot of sense to me because one of the one of the things that needs to happen is we kind of have to change the mindset of police that they go into these communities with um so i found an editorial from the san diego union tribune and it's from january 1st of this year by ian Ayers and daniel markovitz and it's called enforcing the law without force and so it raised the question Should police be permitted to initiate force when confronting misdemeanors and other non-serious crimes? The answer should be no. Consider what arrests are for. An arrest is not punishment. After all, there has been no conviction at that point. The purpose of an arrest is to to prevent crime and to aid in prosecution by establishing identity, gathering evidence, and preventing flight. The steps taken to secure arrests, therefore, must be proportional to the suspected crimes that underlie the arrests. The current police rules of engagement violate these basic principles at every turn. Convictions for jaywalking and selling single cigarettes, the predicate offenses in Ferguson, Michael Brown, and Staten Island, Eric Garner, respectively, effectively never carry jail sentences, and nobody thinks that they should. Fines are the proper punishments for these minor crimes. But under current law, when the police arrest someone based on nothing more than probable cause of a minor crime, they can treat the wrongdoer more severely than the punishment that would ordinarily be imposed by a court of law. An arrest should not impose a burden greater than a conviction. When it does, the arrest amounts to police oppression. To fix the wrong, we should change the rules of engagement. A police officer confronting someone suspected of only a minor crime should not be permitted to arrest the suspect by force. In most cases, the police should simply issue a ticket. If the police wish to take someone into custody, they should not use force but instead issue a warning like the Miranda warning. If the person complies upon hearing the warning, that ends the matter. If not, then the police can obtain a warrant from a judge and make a forcible arrest for both the old crime and the new crime of not coming with the officer. Similar rules of engagement should govern searches based on suspicion of petty crimes. And again, this is one of those things where in a world where most people were... Sane and rational, but also in a world where the systems and the rules we have in place require decency and require people with power and authority to see everyone they interact with as a full human being deserving of rights and protection and, you know, liberty. Um, it, It should not make sense to have to insist upon these things by changing laws and by changing systems. But these are the systems we have in place, you know, and and that's never to say that there aren't going to be other potential loopholes because the ways that power resists regulation, I think, will always be one incentive that that power has, you know. There is a corrupting aspect to power no matter how it's being used, you know, but... There's also an extent to which I think we're obligated to try to change the systems that have already been changed, to change laws that were put in place, you know, not in the Constitution, not even 100 years ago, but in the last 20 or 30 years, these laws have been put put in place under both Republican and Democratic leadership, and... We're at a point where we can now statistically document the unequal ways that these laws are implemented. But not only that, we can now document them in the moment when they're actually happening before power gets a chance to tell its own side of the story, before propaganda gets a chance to hijack our empathy and hijack our basic powers of observation. So again, like it's, it's, it's a moment of great horror and a lot of scary, horrifying shit, but I think that is what's necessary to even begin to generate the kind of activity and determination and resolve it'll take to change all of this.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Sorry, that was was a lot, I don't know what you me to say to that. It was... um, um. I don't think that going to, I mean, I don't know. I, I like that there have been steps already in terms of having to use, I mean, having to record um, police interactions with civilians. However, it doesn't seem like it's changing the rate at which people get murdered by
1: police. Well, and, and I think that's, that's not only a great point, I think it... Underlines the extent to which blindness, um, both intentional blindness and blindness, you know, like people just being ignorant, but also um, the systems of power and authority stepping in to protect their own, and kind of you know mainstream media stepping in to justify stereotypes and to justify um, the police accounts of events. There is inherently change just in the unmasking of this monster. I think there is a great deal of both shift in perspective, but also a shift in awareness and consciousness and an escalation in our collective revulsion toward this. And again, I think that's necessary because the the thing is, like, I, I agree with you. I don't think that body cameras change anything on their own. I don't think they're sufficient to dissuade police from responding with violence to nonviolent people who are not suspected of violent crimes. But I do think it helps anything that helps puncture the kind of bubble of white privilege and white blindness to this atrocity that's going on in the name of American justice is helpful. Um, Because it makes us, it makes more of us aware of how much of this has been an illusion. How much of the idea that American communities are actually safe has been just an an illusion. And it's an illusion that serves to hide um, very specific and very racist brutality. Um, So I think that, like, I I support because, you know, hitting briefly one more time on the kind of horse race of 2016 most of the presidential candidates at least on the democratic side have said they support body cameras and that's nice and all i really don't think it's going to change anything especially anything systematic about the way that non-white people and non-wealthy people are being oppressed and the way that um the humanity of many americans is not being recognized under the law Um, But at least it's going to give more of us um, less of a chance to blind ourselves to it and less of a chance to avoid it and less of a chance to not have the pain of it um, confront us in any real or tangible way.
0: I mean, that's very hopeful, surprisingly hopeful. I don't know. I have a very different perspective. I mean, I was pulled over the other day. And I was shaking, like uncontrollably, because I was like super afraid I was going to get murdered. Um, and luckily, it was a really nice cop. And he told me right away, um, just so you know, this is being recorded. And once he said that, I mean, some of me felt a little relief. But I mean, when I thought about it, when I left, I was like, no, he could, still could have murdered me. I mean, I had a taillight out and he wasn't a dick. So that was two very... I wasn't speeding. Nothing was, you know, it was, it was a tail light out. He wasn't being a dick. That could have gone very, very differently if, you know, I didn't have my state badge on me or I didn't. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I don't know. I, I don't feel comfortable right now. And
1: I don't know Right. What, in the in the presence of a camera doesn't do anything to make you feel safer.
0: Nothing whatsoever. And I don't think that anybody is actively, I mean, I really, I mean, I guess internet comments is where I'm getting most of my, um, like dread (laughs) because I mean, racists are really loud and obnoxious and everywhere on the internet. Um, and I just, I can't, I can't with that. So like when I drive in a car right now, I just make sure that I have a white person with me for the most part. And that's about all I can do.
1: Well, as someone who takes a white person everywhere he goes, I I respect you for including us. <laughs> um and also that's horrifying. And yeah, I, I completely understand. Like and it And that's an aspect of it that I have the luxury not even to have to take into account. Like by virtue of white. Um at the same time though, like I have never not shaken, like uncontrollably, whenever I'm pulled over by police. I've never not been completely terrified from the first moment of interaction with a police officer. Like, I, I, and I will be perfectly willing to admit that, that, that fear may be completely misplaced, that I usually have nothing to worry about or fear. Um, but I've always had the, upfront understanding that my life is in my hands whenever I interact with an officer of the law but I also have privilege and I have the luck of birth to know that or at least expect that I'll probably be treated like a human mm-hmm. but I but I also like definitely appreciate your putting your personal perspective on that as well as like p- putting it in the specific context of fucking Indiana because fuck Here's a
0: story, actually, I don't know if I've told this on the podcast before, but the first time I ever got pulled over, um, I believe I was 17 and about to go to college, and it was in Zionsville, where I grew up, and I was going 30 and a 20, which was a school zone, I got pulled over, I was given a ticket by this lady cop, um, and it was, I found out, a $500 ticket, and I was like, I don't have that, so I just went to college. Um, while I was at college, my mom was like, you've got a summons from a cop for like a failure to appear on this ticket. And, um, she befriended the judge somehow. I don't know how she does these things, but she befriended the judge who was like, are hate. you sure you should be telling this story? <laughs> Maybe not. Anyway, I'm going to, it was like a decade ago. So I'm oh, hoping okay. statute of limitations. Yeah. But, um, I think over a decade ago and I'm assuming Uh, she found out that the judge's son went to USC and she was like, you need to find him. So I found him at a party and talked to him about what was happening. And then he talked to his dad and then they reduced that $500 or however much it was with the failure to appear tacked on to like $30. And then I got to go back to school and everything. Shit. Yeah. So I think that was the first time I understood what privilege was. And my mom I that by just um essence of just her being just like that like that type of person
1: she well is. and also and also the essence of the usc connection yes
0: yes you
1: know and that's and that's a and that's a class privilege
0: mm-hmm. for sure i mean i mean i was there on scholarship but still right. i understand what you're saying
1: yeah yeah <laughs> it's uh, yeah it's completely that's very interesting well and also i think i'll i just a side note i'm going to switch around um i was going to talk about the supreme court stuff next but uh, like i think this is a perfect segue into talking about um two of the loudest and most awful voices in the room uh when it comes to whiteness in america kim davis and donald trump yeah ew god yeah um yeah, I think it's I think that's a perfect segue because I think um one of like alongside the kind of uh explosion of consciousness that we're having or alongside the increased awareness and consciousness that we're having toward police brutality, toward the ways that our political system oppresses non-white people, I think we're also seeing in reaction to that a complete meltdown in the minds and hearts of white people across America, I think, I think the white people are going crazy. Oh, yeah. Like, they've been, we've been, we've been showing our asses for a while now, Asia, as I'm (laughs) sure you will attest. But like, white people are bathing ourselves in glory lately. (laughs) Have you noticed? Oh my gosh. I mean, I think it's kind of beautiful
0: in a way that, you know, I mean, for me at least, it's like validating things that I have known since birth, but in just such like a beautiful and perfect and direct way. It's like, they're not hiding anymore. You can clearly see it and you can just justify it or you could, um, I guess, distance yourself from it as far as you can and i think that that's um it's
1: kind of spectacular in a way isn't it though like i i in a way i feel almost more optimistic about white supremacy's ability to completely self-sabotage itself than i feel optimistic about movements like Black Lives Matter and other movements' ability to infiltrate and really change the political system. Or rather, like, I feel... Maybe I feel... Maybe I can only feel so optimistic about Black Lives Matter because I feel so optimistic about white people's uh, tendency to show all of their asses. Um, I don't...
0: That um, only because um, it's putting basically the hands... This is exactly why I freaked out after seeing 12 Years of Slave because it's just like no, black people can't do anything for themselves. It's all contingent upon what white people do. It's like what Chris Rock said um, that we're just dealing with like the sanest white people that we have ever um, and that things aren't actually changing for black people, but white people are changing. And I don't, I don't like that comparison,
1: but I understand what you're saying. Well... I certainly get what you mean. Like in critiquing it too, Um, I do think you're absolutely right. I just think it's depressing. I guess is what I'm yeah, yeah. No, that's that's. I completely agree with that. Uh, Again, it shouldn't have to be that so many white folks need to be woken up. Apparently, still, like it. It's like that. It's wrong that that is. It is. It is in and of itself wrong that that is the case. Um, but again, when, when the system and the laws and the racism that are in place kind of structurally have been around so long, I think in large part because of white complicity, but also just kind of white people being able to ignore the effects of it that don't benefit them. Um, I think that the fact that they're not hiding anymore is a necessary step um because i think that and the kind of increased awareness of you know police violence increased awareness of um issues of chronic homelessness joblessness all of that like i i think those go hand in hand in uh making it impossible for people to ignore everything anymore but then you have people who respond by pretending to be victims by trying to claim the mantle of victimhood and trying to elevate themselves based on that. Um, One of the things that we missed while we were away from the By That I Mean podcast was the legalization nationwide of marriage equality by the Supreme Court. I think I'll speak for myself. I was very, very happy that day. I was very happy that day as well. So, yeah, so I I see Kim Davis and Donald Trump as uh, two... Actually, they're the same side of the same coin. (laughs) They're not two sides of one coin. (laughs) Um, I I think they are two spasms of a collective white race having a complete meltdown. Um, The Supreme Court this year, as we said, legalized marriage equality... And amid that and the rise of Black Lives Matter and the national conversation, I think white people are feeling confronted, um, even if they're not consciously connecting this, they're feeling and being confronted with the results of policies and attitudes and stereotypes and judgments and laws that have been in place for decades or centuries now. And much like... The worst among us, among us white folks, are not able to hide it anymore. I think the vast majority of us white folks who are not the most awful ones among us are less able to hide from that than we have been before and less able to excuse it because now these things and these people can become national stories overnight. Kim Davis is a Kentucky legal clerk county clerk of Rowan County, Kentucky, and she refused to issue any marriage licenses at all in protest, she says of the intrusion of her religious liberty. That was the Supreme court's marriage equality decision. What do you think of this Asia? Oh, I mean, it's just like a a, a bag of bullshit is what it is. I think (laughs) it's a fresh overflowing bag of bullshit. (laughs) She's, um, um,
0: woefully, mistaken as to the power that her job
1: holds, I think. Also woefully mistaken about the law. Also woefully mistaken about the separation of church and state. Ding 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 ding. (laughs) That's that's the real winner there. I think the I think the deepest part of it is that she she works for the government but thinks that entitles her to speak and have the government act on behalf of God. And she also doesn't recognize that it's literally not her job to consecrate or approve of shit. Her job to check the things on the checklist to make sure that a marriage contract that has been legally applied for is all f- up to snuff. Like her job is basically, literally, her job is literally a clerk. She is a clerk. She's not fucking clergy. She does not understand that, or does not or refuses to admit that she is not actually acting on behalf of God. Her job is to act on behalf of the state as someone who's just approving. She's not expressing her approval. She is approving. And those are slightly different concepts. And there's like one invisible man involved in one of those concepts that is not involved in the other one. Completely different concepts. And I'm, I'm just, well, really, uh, gets my
0: goat about this lady that's a that's a phrase right um is oh it's a phrase she's been married four times four four times Divorced three of those obviously um because i don't think that um i don't don't think that um she's been she's she's married four times and that's an issue um because I, i i see a lot of um christians kind of Hitching their wagon to this woman and her
1: cause. And, well, and, and that's going to happen too. I mean, like she, on, um, on the 4th, she was actually arrested and held in contempt of court. Because the Supreme Court would not take up her case that appealed, you know, her being compelled to issue these marriage licenses.
0: Mm -hmm. Um,
1: But now she's been in jail. And, of course, she has a lawyer from one of these shitty right-wing evangelical groups called the Liberty Council. And, you know, she's already saying that she's a prisoner of her conscience. And, you know, she's going to get her book deal and possibly her reality show. Or maybe she'll become Donald Trump's vice presidential running mate. Um, But, I again, I I see her and Trump as the same side of this kind of new face of reactionary right-wing freakishness. Um, And, of course, personal um, hypocrisy on every single level is going to be endemic to these people because what they believe in is not any actual actions, but what they believe in is the righteousness of themselves and their own egos and their own id. Um, I think Donald Trump – just the same, is, is posing as someone whose favorite book is the Bible, the Bible, and who um, who just loves the evangelical so much and is getting the support of the entire right-wing Republican evangelical base. Even though he's been married umpteen million times and cheated on umpteen million of those women, you know, and is a total creep, the point is not to find a righteous person. The point is to find someone as a conduit to express their anger and to express their fear and their anxiety and I I think on some level it's expressing a kind of white fear of becoming a minority and a fear that someday non-white people will treat white people like white people have treated non-white people throughout the history of America well I mean I have a theory about Trump because he didn't
0: seem to become insane like completely insane until um, President Obama got elected um, the first time and then he became more vocal and political so I feel like his run for pre- the presidency is just a bit of jealousy that a black person got to be president before he did
1: I think we need to remember that's a great point we need to remember that Donald Trump was one of the heads of this birther movement yes. who tried to get him to produce his birth certificate
0: yes and he was one of the most vocal about it um, and in a, in a way he was successful because President Obama Ha- I mean, did produce his birth certificate for him, and then um, killed Osama bin Laden that same week. Anyway, so well, he didn't personally, but um, but I just, I mean, I mean, I feel like that's just je- jealousy, and so instead of you know going on about trying to bring down President Obama, he's just like, you know, fine, I'll just run for president, and then do it once I get into office, just undo everything that he's ever done, and that's basically on what day he- one.
1: Yes, Even even though he wouldn't have a Congress, (laughs) with or without a Congress, his pure, unabashed orange whiteness would sweep the entire Obama legacy away.
0: And I feel in a way that a lot of the the crazy things that are happening, you know, I don't want to say to white people because something's happening to them, but within the ranks is in a sense some form of deep-seated jealousy because... You know, something happened. They feel they had no control over. Um, so, I mean, also, I don't like Ben Carson at all. I
1: this has Which nothing. Is sh- and, well, it's it's not directly related to this, but I think it's interconnected because Ben Carson is one of the the kind of. Literal tokens for the GOP's quote-unquote outreach to non-whites, but he ends up spouting the same crazy shit or even crazier shit in an attempt to, you know, overcompensate, an attempt to look stronger or be seen as stronger or more forthright.
0: Yes, and a lot of Republicans are using him as like, see, I'm not racist because I like this guy, and that's an issue, and he knows what he's doing. Like, he has to know what he's doing. And I think that that's really dangerous and also super Uncle Tommy. And I don't – I can't get down with that. Like, it's just every time I see him, I get physically ill because – but anyway, I'm sorry. Back to Trump. That was just a side note where I just had to – I just had to – I haven't really been able to vocalize that anywhere. So,
1: um, yeah, back to Trump. Um, No, but I I appreciate it, though, because Ben Carson – in his life before, an idiotic politician was a brain surgeon. And yeah. he was an inspiration to millions of people before he decided to be a kind of, not just Uncle Tom, like a really vicious anti-abortion, anti-woman's rights. Like, he is taking just cruel and absurd positions. And you would expect that from Donald Trump, you know, because Donald Trump has always been this shitty and he's threatened to run for president time and time again for decades now and hasn't run. Um, but to me, it's all, it definitely is a little bit more surprising that Ben Carson of all people is becoming this vicious. Mike Huckabee has been so super vicious um, and this early in the 2016 cycle. Like I, I think, I mean it's always amazing to me it's always a marvel that during republican primary seasons these people don't completely obliterate themselves with the people who support them but I think it's at the same time disappointingly confirming that this crazy shit is exactly what the base of the republican party wants to hear now you know and there's a reason that it's not just I think you're right that Obama's um Election was part of the thing that pushed Trump really and in his insanity into overdrive. But I also think he's in a position now to where the people who want to hear what he has to say were also kind of amped up um, in the kind of fear and ang- fear and loathing department by Obama's election, you know? So the people have been whipped into this frenzy and the right person has come along to amplify it for them. Um, So, we have to wrap up now, but it's going to be really interesting in the terrifying thrill ride roller coaster kind of way um, to see how this actually plays out in the 2016 elections and in the kind of political discourse of this country, because white identity politics has been both a kind of mainstream current and an undercurrent in various points in American history, and um, sometimes it has stoked Um, A lot of backlash and led to some progress, but in almost every circumstance, it brings up a kind of ugliness that has really disastrous consequences. Um, And a lot of my kind of friends on the left are saying, oh, well, Trump will fizzle out or the party will find some way to get rid of him. But literally, he has enough money that I'm not sure there's a way that what's left of the Republican Party, like the, the kind of party bosses, the, the ones who used to be power people, I'm not sure how they're going to stop him.
0: Also, it seems like they've tried to get rid of him and all it's done is strengthen his resolve and his campaign chances for some weird reason. Like I saw the Republican debates and I didn't feel like there was necessarily a vendetta against Trump, but there were some very... I don't want to say like pointed questions that were
1: basically designed to make Trump look like an idiot. And, um, and he... yeah, from the, from the moderator Megyn Kelly. And he ended up turning the whole thing on her mm-hmm. and making it, um, an, a, a part of his arsenal of argument against how, you know, they're trying to, uh, disenfranchise him, how they're trying to. You know, bring up gotcha questions as though asking someone about the literal things that they have literally said in the past is a gotcha question. Um, but again, for the people who who were and and i I think I would even tie this back to kind of what we opened our discussion with in terms of working on ourselves, you know, because a lot of the people who we were talking about who are the remaining Republican voters, are the people who have been disenfranchised by other laws. They've been disenfranchised when corporations for decades were shipping middle-class jobs overseas. When the America built by decades of uh, deregulating Republicans and deregulating corporate-friendly Democrats, you know, we have an economy now where it's tougher than ever for people to get into the middle class and easier than ever for people to fall out of it. So there are tons of people who have been economically disenfranchised And when you get put into that position, when you get um, put under that amount of stress, it's easy for your ego to become central to your kind of way of thinking about everything and your way of relating to the world. So again, it makes a sad kind of sense that what's left of Republican voters are going for this so wholeheartedly. I certainly hope that they don't have enough numbers and that they can't... um, that they can't exclude enough people from the ballot box next year that they won't win this. Um, But it's going to be a really, really interesting ride. And I hope you will be there for at least part of it.
0: I feel like the weirdest part about this whole thing is that Trump kind of symbolizes um, exactly how Republicans will vote against their own self interests.
1: Oh, exactly. He has signified that for like 30 years and now, it's like the, the system has grown the perfect expression of itself.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, somebody who unabashedly sends jobs overseas.
1: And at the same time... Right. Dave, yeah. it, of all people, David fucking Letterman uh, challenged Trump on the fact that like his clothing line, and let's pause on that for a half second. Donald Trump has a fucking clothing line. Um, <laughs> but David Letterman, of all people, was the one to point out to Donald Trump that his own ties were made in China. You know, like he has taken advantage of all of the loopholes and laws and trade deals that allow rich people to serially fuck over poor people. And mm. that affects not just non- non-white folks. It affects not just Americans of color. That affects all of the working and poor white folks who are going to be on the Trump bandwagon and who will support this guy. Um, but, yeah, definitely I, I hope that with me on at least part of this ridiculous freaky thrill ride – through the bowels of American fear. Um, but for now, this has been the by that I mean podcast and the first episode of 2015. Woohoo! Wow, it's September, Seth. It is somehow <laughs> already September. <laughs> I am somehow still Seth Pearson. I am Asia. Um, and you can reach me on Twitter at MFPSeth. You can check out my website at themfp.org. The, by that I mean, podcast is a production of the MFP Studio Studio in Los Angeles, California, and you can definitely not reach Asia on pretty much anything other than Skype, and even that is kind of an accomplishment.
0: Or Facebook, I have a
1: Facebook. Oh yeah, I, she's she's on the Facebooks too. You guys, like
0: she's I don't she's
1: with, I don't use it, <laughs> and she's on Twitter but doesn't use it. But. Yeah, you can you can check her out on Facebook. But until then, thank you so much, Asia. I miss and love you. I miss and love you. I will talk to you soon. Okay, have fun. Love you. Bye. Love you, bye.